morning to you all. Uh, glad to be here on this Sunday. You know, this is last week of Pastor James's sabbatical, and I, for one, am glad that he'll be back next week, and he's raring to go. He's like a thoroughbred waiting in the gates to open for him. And um, if he was um, up to him, he'd be back here weeks and months ago, but um, he really misses Cornerstone, and um, he'd like to be back as soon as possible. And I want to thank... Um, Pastor Dan and Pastor Marcus for fulfilling the pulpit last nine weeks. They're doing a tremendous job. I think it's a tremendous blessing to me because over the years we had few pastors who took on this role. And, um, you know, even James' sabbatical would not be possible without these men. You know, I sense the depth of our, our bench like the Lakers, you know, and, uh, and uh, I feel good about that. We could go deep and go months without having our senior pastor having to take up the pulpit and doing a good job with that. And um, I want to thank them for just faithfully preaching the Word. And I hope to kind of carry that on this morning. You know, for those of you who know me a little bit, <clears throat> there's one thing I really dislike a lot. And I, I to the point, because we're on this topic today, the word is hate. I, the point I hate is losing. Okay, I don't like losing to you, any of you, <laughs> or anyone out there, even to my children. Okay, when we are in a competitive game situation, it's gloves come off. I'm there to win. You know, and I'm. And those of you know, I broke my finger a couple of weeks ago playing sports with some of you, trying to win. You know, and I just don't like winning. Sometimes, you know, in business because of my work, requires me to play sports like golf. And, you know, when I'm with my client, you know, I have to watch out how I play, why I watch him play. And if he's just horrendous, I have to kind of tone my game. You know, I can't be, like, hitting all these shots. And he's like, you know. And one, there's one gentleman, younger guy, um, I'd known for years. He was, my, was our customer. And we developed a relationship playing golf for about four or five years, playing about three, four times a year, and he is not very good, so, um, and I had to watch, and I got to a point, after our relationship built for a while, I said, I said, Brian, you know, I'm tired of playing customer golf with you, like, toning my game down, you need to get some lessons and do something, <laughs> so he took my counsel, and he got lessons, and he said, Bob, today, I'll play for, uh, we'll play for dinner, I think I'm ready to take you on, just give me a couple shots. I ended up beating him by like 10 shots. And he, the first time I made my customer buy me dinner <laughs> because of that. But nonetheless, you know, so I don't know what I like more is winning or just hating losing. I don't know what is greater in me. I just hate to lose. But I say this as a groundwork to today's text is that in Luke 24, we'll turn there right now. Luke 24, verses 25 through 35. <clears throat> the text says, Now a large crowd were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, he does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brother, sister, as even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough 
to complete it. Otherwise, he has laid the foundation is not able to finish. All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks the terms of peace, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, the salt is good, but even if the salt has become tasteless, with what, what, with what will it season? It is useless either for soil or for the manure pile when it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I use this analogy of winning, hating, losing, and love winning compared to Christ clearly uses the word hate. Okay? And I looked up this word. It is literally hate. Okay? And I think the word hate is used because, we'll study, talk more about it, because it is in light of what you love. Okay. So here is the context is Jesus is basically on his way to Jerusalem. We know what happens there. We know the conclusion of his earthly ministry and the direction he is headed. He has a large gathering of people following him. And he is laying it down for people of what it's going to take. You're physically following now, following me now. Was it, what is it really going to take to truly be my follower? Okay. This statement is not necessarily driven at animosity toward your family, even yourself, or your possessions, but priority, the demand for priority for devotion to him, to be his follower. So I've broken down this text into four sections today, and we'll cover all four. First is the tension. Second is the burden. Third is the calculation. And last, fourth, is the value. First, the tension. The tension in this text. Is that Martin Luther once said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth nothing. And one other pastor said, Jesus invited us not to a picnic, but a pilgrimage. Not to a frolic, but to a fight. He offered us not an excursion, but an execution. Our Savior said that we would have to be ready to die to self. You know, this paradoxical nature of this portion of Luke's Gospel calls us, for all of us as followers of Christ, to disencumber ourselves from family, possessions, even self. Right? Now, this is a stunning statement Christ makes. Here's a bunch of people following, and he stops and turns around and makes a statement. And everybody's riveted. And I'm sure after this statement, the crowd is just reeling in shock of what Christ demands from his followers. Because in the Jewish context, in many Asian contexts, in all uh, cultures, family is a very sacred unit. It's a center of economy. It means of land ownership. Even like you know, marriage 
it was family to family matchmaking of their fathers. It happened when, within the context of family. So everything involved in the um, family context, or minimally, great influences of life came through family um, influences. So tension here is the word hate. And Jesus clearly uses this word. But if you, Jesus is using this word hate in a conventional sense, in the context of the family, it clearly contradicts many other portions of Scripture. Right? We see in 1 John 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay? You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If anyone says, I love God and hates his own brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Okay. And this clearly seems to contradict great portion of scripture that tells us to love our family, devote ourselves to family. But he says here in Luke 14, to hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sister. You know, in other portions of scripture, the, te- the Bible tells us we don't even have the luxury of hating our own enemies, let alone our families. But one thing we have to remember, one important rule of interpreting Scripture is that allow Scripture to, to interpret other portions of Scripture. So therefore, the Bible cannot contradict itself sometimes as it appears, as it is, it appears to. So it's, it's important for us to distinguish the biblical meaning of the word hate here versus the modern world definition that we live under today. So I even consulted my personal theologian on this, Jason Park, and he concurred with me. And um, so I have one resource backing. Okay. So we have to remember, in ancient, near ancient uh, East, the, there weren't very many lukewarm passages. Like, you know, some of young men say this, I like her. Either you love or you hate her, right? There's there's no liking. How many times do you see like or liking in the Bible? Very, very rare, okay? These languages weren't used. So, the word hate, again, is in contrast to the word love. So, many times you'll see in the Bible these ultimate terms, strong terms, sometimes seemingly exaggerated terms in modern day for us to use harsh words to hate, it's like kind of like not PC in this world, but obviously Jesus wasn't concerned about that. He didn't even know what PC meant at that time. So, but that's the context of which the word is used here. Because you, know, you look in the Old Testament, in Genesis 29, the relationship between Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Leah is whom? The Bible t- tells us. The Bible, Bible tells us she is the less loved wife of Jacob, right? How would you like to be the less loved wife of somebody, right? Right? And also we see in, in, in Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And they didn't really hate, but these are strong term terminologies. Sometimes it could be referred as less love in light of someone or something else. Okay. So I think that helps us kind of understand the language God uh, Jesus uses here. But I think the strength of the meaning is the same. 
right? What do you love first? What is the priority? Now he's putting in context of the family, even the dearest family, in light of him, we have to see the priority that Jesus lays down. Okay? He's basically saying, coming to me is not going, like going to the Wizard of Oz and having your wishes fulfilled. This is going to cost you a lot. Okay? It's, it can be painful, and suffering is going to be par for the course. So if you're not willing to sacrifice or give up even the most precious things in your life, and he puts one of the highest things, family, you can't follow me. You'll fall short. It's like a soldier. A good soldier from Band of Brothers. You you heard what Ronald Spears said, right? How many of you still not have seen (laughs) Band of Brothers? Okay, there's something going on in this church. It's very disturbing to me then. This is the required reading or watching in your 2009. Is that Ronald Spears says he's, he's a good soldier because he knows he's already dead. He fights as if he's already dead. His life has no value and he fights and he's a tremendous soldier. But it's the same thing. As Christ, when we follow Christ, no other priorities, even ourselves, our lives, can't be that we can't have our own agenda in life except for what is Christ's agenda in our lives. And that's what he's depicting here. Is ask, he's seeking and demanding the singular devotion to God, to Him. Now, I want to use this as a backdrop. I taught this several years ago, Exodus 20, Exodus 34, that God is a jealous God. Right? God, our God is a jealous God. He said in Exodus 20, that you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? To have other God is to love that whatever God or thing above God Yahweh himself. Exodus 20, verse 5 says, I, the Lord your God, am jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. The same word is used in Hebrew. God is a jealous God. You know, sometimes I had a difficult time understanding that God could be jealous because human jealousy is all sinful. God's jealousy this jealousy is holy. It's asking for or seeking singular devotion. Okay? And Exodus 34 even drives it home further, is that, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name, his name is jealous, is jealous, it's jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play harlots with other gods and sacrifice for their gods. Now, J.I. Packard in his book, Knowing God, describes God's jealousy as holiness, reacting to evil in a way that is morally right, glorious. The wrath of God is judicial action, zeal to preserve something supremely precious. It is morally right, morally just. And jealousy of God, demanding the singular devotion from us, is one of the greatest attributes of God. We must understand and acknowledge that God's love and grace, as well as his hatred for sin, wrath, and jealousy. Okay. The nature of his jealousy is that he loves his own people and he demands the zeal to protect that relationship. The Exodus 34 uses the word harlotry against those who are worshiping other gods. So when we have idols, even families, family members, or even your job, your education, your position, 
your titles behind your name on your business cards, what you accomplish in this world, what you're pursuing in this world, you are, we are practicing spiritual prostitution. I'm not saying this for shock value. This is what the Bible says. It's you are, we are playing harlotry when we worship other things, when we don't hate, as Luke 14 says, anything else other than God, when we, our heart and what is we're devoted, what we're pursued of in life is greater than Christ himself, it is spiritual prostitution. It is God's way of wanting to, desiring to protect in a, He kins to a marital relationship. The Bible says, for the church is the bride of Christ. Right? A husband, the groom, has the right to demand singular devotion from his wife. Right? In a way, when we, you know, this is kind of a funny way, but I think you'll understand, when we practice spiritual harlotry, it's like your wife, men, you, you married men, no, or engaged men, no. It's like your wife having a picture of her old boyfriend in her wallet still, in her purse. Or even on your home dresser drawer, right in front of your, next to your bed. And she looks at it. And she has a gleam smile on her face. It's kind of funny, but that's the picture you draw. God is protecting that relationship. So the picture is not a girlfriend, not a wife. God's jealousy is more like a powerful, almighty and merciful king who takes a peasant girl who lived a life of shame, forgives her, and takes her in and marries her and give her not chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife or a queen. That's the picture that Christians are, that God draws for us. It's a jealousy between a husband and wife in a marital relationship. It's a righteous jealousy. It's a right jealousy. It's to protect the affections. That's how much affection God has for us. And that's what He demands from us, a singular devotion. And that demand is right. It's holy and it's precious. J.I. Packer also writes, God's jealousy over his people, as we have seen, presupposes his covenant love. Then this love is no transitory affection or accidental or aimless, but is an expression of sovereign love purpose. The goal of the covenant love of God is that we should have, have a people on earth as long as history lasts and after that we should have all his faithful ones of every age with him in glory. The covenant love is the heart of God's plan for this world. Okay? This is the main purpose for God's jealousy. And God's jealousy is provoked by when we have idols before him. We have been betrothed to him in Second Corinthians 11.2. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as chaste, a virgin to Christ. It's a good thing. It's the right thing. Right. So the question is, Christ is drawing family as possible idol for us for, for committing adultery, spiritual adultery with, or it could be any other thing in life that encumbers us 
instead of Christ, against Christ, and stands in the way of Christ. Because I also believe this, this is not in the text, but Jesus used the family because it's obviously the height of one's priorities. And it should be. It's, the good, it's a good thing. But he doesn't mention other things of life because they're far below the importance of family. So everything falls after that. But sometimes, for all of us, we follow even the things not of the family far below that, that we idolize, that we commit spiritual adultery with. that we spend so much energy, our thought life, our pursuit. Next is the burden. Here comes the burden. Jesus does not say, Jesus never said in his life, I will carry the cross for you. Things will be easy. It will be all roses. And life will be dandy. You know, we must be willing to nail ourselves, our sins to the cross. We must be able to nail everything we love, every encumbrance of life, even the most valuable in light of Christ. In Luke 14, in 20, verse 27, Jesus is saying, you must carry the cross. Meaning, life will be difficult. Life will be difficult. You know, you got to remember, the cross, this is pre-cross for Christ, right? He's on his way to Calvary. And for people, observers, who are listening to this, only the vile, I mean, truly vile, heinous criminals went to the cross. And Christ is saying, you must carry that cross. And someone once said, God, when he saved us, he saved us from hell, but He didn't save us from the cross. And we must be willing to face the cross and carry it. Life, to be a follower of Christ, not only will there be suffering, we must be able to handle suffering for the glory of God and be thankful. Because we will be persecuted because He's... He was persecuted, but we have life that will be difficult. Difficulties of life will come at us. But in a way, again, this is not God. Christ didn't say this in this text. But with singular devotion, he's calling the elect to himself. As he called the elect, now we have the luxury of standing on this side of the Bible is complete. Is that the elect with their singular devotion will walk in glory and they will persevere and is due to Christ his sufficiency he'll persevere will persevere next portion of the text is the calculation it's a calculation you must calculate there are costs involved and Jesus uses two parables to explain the costs involved Many of you who have paid attention in history class know the Battle of Bighorn, right? Okay, I see some eyes. You guys didn't pay attention in those classes. So what is that? Bighorn, Lieutenant Colonel Custer, George Custer, who, who attacked which Indian chief? Sioux chief? 
Who was it? Sitting bull. Say someone paid attention in here. Good seriously. Sitting bull with one quarter of the army or the men he had versus the Indians. He attacked them and got slaughtered. Got slaughtered. Okay. Didn't calculate. And he tells us two parables. One, William Hendrickson calls in verse 28, says, the parable of the reasonable builder. Here's a builder who, you're going to build a building, you need to calculate everything, because in the middle of it, you fall short, lay the foundation, and still you cannot finish. You can't finish building this tower. You have not calculated the total cost, and you'll fail. If you don't know what you're getting into, you will fail. Jesus is laying a, a picture of what it'll take. Know what you're getting into. And he gives another parable in verse 31 of the parable of the, the reckless king who goes in the army. You better, you know, he's saying, the, the, if you're going, sending against another kingdom and going to battle, and if you're not going to win this battle, it's better for you to um, come to some terms of peace so that you're kingdom, your people are not slaughtered. Send the delegation and find an agreement. Get to an agreement of peace. So these two parables are parallel. They approach the issue of the deliberation it's required from you to follow Christ. In both parables, the message is clear. Those who begin a major endeavor need to be prepared to see it to finish. You know, again, on this side of the completion of the Bible, we know, we know the elect will calculate the cost and will persevere. That's the glory of God's truth, right? You know, many people cause, and even the text, you know, disciple, it causes the cost of discipleship, counting the cost. You know, Word discipleship or disciple is no different than just a Christian. This is what is required of a Christian, not a super Christian, not a leader of a church or a pastor. It's a Christian. And Jesus' word states here that being a Christian comes at a very high cost. He knew that he needed to prepare his followers for. And maybe perhaps he was sifting the weeds. He wasn't trying to call the elect. He was trying to eliminate the not-elect with this. Because the elect would follow. Because Jesus says in the Gospel of John, those who know my voice, hear me and know me. He was trying to tell people who weren't going to make it to go home. And he needed to prepare those who are going to follow for the long haul, for the tough race. Because Jesus has a way of turning those who are caught up in adultery, their own sins, their selfishness, their self-centeredness. Because His Word doesn't return without, with void. He, this is why He tells them that the kingdom of God demands an ultimate complete loyalty. You know, he's not afraid to give the hard news because his word would do its work and true followers will wholeheartedly hear and there's no room for this nominal Christianity. 
And the fourth is the value, the significance of losing saltiness. Verse 34, 35 says, The salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor manure pile. It is thrown out. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. The people who aren't following with the right motives, with understanding the cost, you're good for nothing. Right? Let's talk about salt a little bit. You know, salt has probably gotten bad name in the last 25 years, right? You know? You know, it gives you high blood pressure, possibly leading to stroke and other many physical ailments. And a bad name. Maybe it's true, but it wasn't like that all the time, obviously in the Bible. Right? Salt free foods have become very popular. But that was unheard of in the in Jesus' days. Salt was part of daily life at your dinner tables, even in the temple, and every bedside. You know, because salt is good because it preserves it combats deterioration, imparts flavor. And I think in the context of this, that Jesus by now has witnessed many Pharisees himself, scribes, people who advocate legalistic religion in place of true religion. Thus, by and large, salt has li- he is indicating salt has lost its flavor in the life of Israel. This is my own personal conjecture and in the context of which he says this. This is, um, but at the time, salt was one of the most valued commodities in the ancient Near East. This is way before refrigerators, right? You know, Roman soldiers, I didn't know this, were also sometimes paid in salt because of a valuable commodity. Right? They paid them in salt. And, you know, this is what kind of preaching does to you. It makes you do things that I would never do is look at the etymology of salt. Uh, salt you look at that. Your word salary comes from the word salt. The root word salary, it comes from the word salt. Right? Because the soldiers used to get paid partially in salt. That's how valuable it was. Like traded as a commodity or money. So even in Christ's days, it was very valuable, like money in the bank almost. Okay. And it was sometimes valued up there with something like gold. But one thing about saltiness and like gold and other commodities is that once you lose its favor, it's just no good. It's no good. You're throwing out, like Jesus says, as trash. You know, maybe perhaps Christ is saying here, first of all, as you hate your father and mother, one thing I think one lesson we take away up to this far is it's not what you have what we have to offer to God that's important. It's not I am convinced of this being in ministry is that it's not about what we have as gifts, what we can do for God. It's about what we are willing to give up. How much are we willing to give up? How much are we willing to accept for God, even the sufferings? And if we can't do that, we lose our saltiness. That's the critical fact. Our, Our willingness to give up whatever and accept whatever God has for us 
maintains our saltiness. Death distinguishes us from the world as lovers of Christ. Jesus doesn't want anything from us, right? What does it cost to come to Jesus to be justified and to be saved? Nothing. But what it requires is, for sanctification, is to give up. It's a commitment. It's what we leave behind. Leaving behind, giving up, and accepting Christ's terms in our lives, whatever He has for us, is trust. This is true Christianity, right? Is that like salvation? It begins by recognizing the high price that is required and that we know that we are unable to meet our salvation, to have salvation, unless Christ did it all and we come to Christ again empty-handed, accepting His terms of life, whatever He has for us, and then living it and rejoicing in it and praising God in it. And looking to Him, not we could do, and thanking Him for what we cannot do. Thanking Him for what we cannot change. Thanking Him, allowing us to accept it as they are. So even great, this is why great quantities of salt doesn't matter. right? Great things we have in life doesn't matter. Only sometimes a little bit of salt is more important. Either salt is salty or it's useless. There's no lukewarmness as a Christian. Christ wants devotees. Complete devotion to Him. So in this last few minutes here, you know, sometimes it's, I was thinking, what what makes us salty? It's hard for us to describe that. I'm a kind of a, maybe kind of a little bit dyslexic, is that um, sometimes I figure out what it is not and helps to figure out what it is. Right? So let's talk about, in the remaining of our time, what are greatest signs of us losing our saltiness? And hopefully it will help us to figure out on our own what it means to be salty. What makes, what can make Christians lose their saltiness? I think number one, let's start with the basics here. Um, lack of passion for the gospel. Right? One of the greatest dangers of a Christian is to develop a callous heart toward the gospel. A passionless love for the lost. Apathetic heart of people's spiritual conditions. When we see a person dying, what do we do spiritually? And sometimes, especially for the leaders of this church, those of you in leadership, those of us who are in leadership, you know, we get admired in ministry. We get admired in doing things. We forget the true passion that should drive us is the gospel. Do we have compassion for the lost? Or do we have fear of man when it comes to sharing the gospel? And I think one of the greatest signs of losing passion for the gospel is 
that we are not thankful each day. We're less thankful. What it also turns into, more do we complain and grumble a lot about life? Secondly, is the lack of contentment. The lack of contentment. Particularly, in two areas. One is lack of contentment in the local church. Of the local church. You know, God intends to, God's intended design is to bring glory to Himself primarily through the local church. Not as individuals. Christian's commitment first starts with honoring God, loving Christ by loving the church. So do you often, are you content with the local church? Do you love your church? Do you love its members and its leaders? Do you obey the word of God and practice the one another's in the church? As a commitment is high, we must be resolute to do the same thing in the church for the church and its members. And one pastor told me, how do you know if you're at the right church? He said, it's a church where God has you now. That's the right church. Christ died for the local church, Cornerstone Bible Church. If you say you love Christ and not love the church, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. We need to love the church. We need to... key way to maintaining our saltiness is loving the church and its members. Then secondly, and lastly, I'll cover the rest of our time, is lack of contentment in our current circumstances. We could start out with complaining and grumbling. You know, like, we have a lot to be thankful for, right? How many of us stood in line in DMV and was thankful in your hearts? Right? Do you thank God for the Department of Motor Vehicles? Right? Traffic jams when you're going down 405 parking lot and you're sitting there when someone cuts you off. Right? When your fl- luggage gets lost. Right? But we have so much to be thankful for. Those are minor things of life. Right? Philippians 2.14 Do all things without grumbling and disputing, complaining in the heart. You know, complaining is an expression of dissatisfied heart. It's offensive to God. It's in a way somewhat of a rejection to God's chosen way of life for you. Jeremiah Burroughs says in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, contentment arises from grace of God, but murmuring and complaining arises from the corruptness of man's heart. You know, true contentment, a person who maintains their saltiness is independent of their circumstances and their thankfulness to God. We often crumble at life's difficulties by being content is synonymous with not being a victim of circumstances or considering ourselves a victim. And I would urge you, well, last week, Pastor Dan taught um, 
through a book of Job's, did a real good synopsis of the book of Job's, and he taught us um, some key things to remember in our Pillars uh, class last week. You know, the story of Job tells us that our life circumstances, life difficulties have nothing to do with our righteousness. It happens to us when we are the most righteous people in the world. It's God's sovereign purpose. He has a purpose. Another thing we know is that we may never understand why these are, things are happening to us. There's no record in the Bible that Job ever knew why, what happened in chapter 1. He never knew the conversation Christ, God had with Satan. He never knew. Probably never knew. It doesn't have to do sometimes with sinful things happen to you, difficult things. It doesn't mean necessarily you do sinful things. Now you do sinful things, foolish things. It happens. And it happens because of our foolishness. But even the most righteous people have suffering as Christians. That's God's ordained way of, of it happening. Job lost in two days his wealth, his children, his health, and his wife was not exactly the most encouraging person in the world. Right? Didn't help either. Hardships may come to the most righteous. Hardships may not make sense. But is our saltiness intact? That's the question. Is our devotion intact? I think like Job, I believe trials, difficulties in life leads us to endure ultimately to God. He is God when we may never know. But we know one thing. In whatever circumstances, God is in control. God is in absolute control. And some of you know who Horatio Spafford is. He's a man who lived in Chicago, had wife and four daughters. He's a lawyer by profession and a Presbyterian elder. In 1873, he put his wife and four his daughters on a ship leaving for Europe. And it collided with the French ship and his four daughters died. All four of them died. His wife survived. And she wrote a telegram back to the state saying, saved alone. She was rescued alone. And he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. He writes. And we sing it sometimes in our, our service here at Cornerstone. He writes, when a peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest his blessed assurance control that Christ had regarded my helpless state has shed his own blood for my soul, it is well with my soul. Now the most interesting fact about Horatio Spafford, we know that his four daughters died. Three, three years before this, his four-year-old son, only son he had, died of scarlet fever. Okay. You know, many people are suffering and many people are hurting. If I commend those in this church and Christians when we rejoice, good things happen. We should rejoice and thank God. 
it's easy to keep our saltiness. When rubber meets the road, when life's difficulties come, in our marriages, with our children, in our jobs, in relationships, maybe with our parents, when difficult, when your heart aches, that's the best time to keep your saltiness. And love Christ even more and give your full devotion to Him and keep that. That's maintaining your saltiness. Not saying, woe is me, why me? That's to keep our, your saltiness. You know, I don't usually praise people. I try not to. You know, I'm not, I'm not very good at that. My wife could attest to that. My children could attest to that, praising people. But I want to uh, talk about one member, uh, Sue Lee and Mike, who face difficulties. And I have tremendous respect for people who are suffering by keeping their faith. Right? These are... Uh, I have no other heroes in life. I, don't, I never like Superman or Batman or anything. But true heroes in life among us who keep their faith. Okay? Nothing inspires my heart more than that. Keeping their saltiness. It challenges me and it keeps my perspective in line as to, wow, these people are keeping their saltiness. I thank God for them. I thank God for them. And she wrote, and I had her permission. I don't know if you read her Zanga post. This is what she writes. She says she has respect for those who are suffering. Yes, we are going through trials, but the truth is, in this world, even our own community, there are so many people who are suffering so much than we ever will. To me, these people are like war heroes. They have scars to prove it. They fought the hard battles. These people are also the ones who love God and others, and others more than we do. We sing and worship more passionately than we do, who look more like our Savior than we do, who know Christ more intimately than we do. I read about them and hear about them and spend time with them. And my heart swells with huge amounts of respect and admiration. To be honest, those are people who I want to hang out with, sit next to and get to know. I want to sit in heaven to be next to them because their lives were all about not, not about landing the best jobs, having the best wardrobe, sending their kids to best Ivy League school. Their lives were stripped to bare essentials and they were given the opportunity to say they sincerely love Jesus better. And that's true heroes of this church and Christians around the world who like Horatio Spafford who has tremendous suffering I can't imagine to lose five kids. You know, let alone maybe even one, but they give it all to maintain their saltiness and say Jesus is better. Right? My life is because of Jesus is better. And some of you have tremendous amount of weight that you carry, and I can't imagine. My life compared to some of you are just it's just roses. And I complain. I'm ashamed because of that. Because you keeping your saltiness, brothers and sisters, members of Cornerstone, remember, you keeping your saltiness makes Christ more beautiful. That is God's intended design. Right? 
in carrying the cross in our lives. Sometimes suffering is part of the equation. Some much greater than others. But to endure it and accept life and circumstances is carrying the cross that Christ has chosen for us. But remember, remember one thing is that Christ will take that cross back one day. Right? When we're in glory, He'll take that cross back and we'll no longer carry it. And we wait that day because we all make commitments to follow and love Christ. But let's not look back in our formal life and maintain our saltiness. Maintain our singular devotion to Him, not committing spiritual adultery and focusing on Christ each day. That we are led by that devotion to Christ. That we would, our prayers would be that we would keep our saltiness for the glory of God. That Christ would be exalted through our suffering and our life period. Let's pray. Our God, we give you praise. We give you thanks for Christ. Through life circumstances, difficulties, and whatever circumstances you have for us, may we accept them in singular devotion to you because Jesus is better than anything else. And we await the day that we are in glory in your presence, to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we wait that day. And we long for that day. But until then, we pray that every Christian here, every follower of you who love you, would maintain our saltiness for the glory of God. In Jesus' name.